This is a Federal News Network podcast. Last month, the National Science Foundation named its newest leader of its Directorate for Engineering. For the past four years, Susan Margulies had been a professor of biomedical engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory University. Federal News Network's Jason Miller recently had a chance to talk with her to discuss why she decided to take her knowledge and experience to the NSF. Susan, thanks for joining us. Let me start with the basics. The National Science Foundation's Engineering Directorate, a lot of people may not have heard of it, not maybe even are unsure what you all do. So maybe just give us that 50,000 foot view of the mission of the Engineering Directorate. And then from there, we can kind of take off our conversation. The mission of the Engineering Directorate at the National Science Foundation is really about addressing the nation's problems by generating very important basic research to be able to allow us to solve those problems that are most pressing in our nation. In addition, the Engineering Directorate expands that mission to also address training the workforce, which includes the engineers at the undergraduate, as well as those post-secondary education, and inspiring young students to become the engineers of tomorrow. So we really focus on the problems, the people, and create key partnerships so that this basic research is translated into real solutions to those problems in the lives of Americans today and tomorrow. It's fascinating because I think one of the things that the National Science Foundation does that maybe people don't realize is the connection back to not just industry, but to academia, which is actually where you came from. Had you worked with the National Science Foundation? Because you're fairly new. I think you just started it in July. I just started in August. So this is actually my fourth week on the job. And uh, my history actually... Uh, does extend uh, far back to the National Science Foundation. When I applied for this position, I looked on my CV and I said, what type of funding have I had from the National Science Foundation? And in fact, it spans many of the programs that the engineering directorate is well known for. It began with a career award, which was my first uh, NSF grant. And it really supported me as a young assistant professor in both research as well as educational initiatives of my own design. And I even had a National Science Foundation that funded a renovation of a facility. I had a National Science Foundation grant that funded a new piece of instrumentation, a very expensive piece of instrumentation, which was a core facility at the University of Pennsylvania where I was a faculty member. And in fact, I've been involved in innovation in engineering education at the graduate and a separate funded project by NSF at the undergraduate level and also one of the ERCs, or Engineering Research Centers. So really, my own funding extends the gamut. And it's a real proud moment in my life to be able to then think about the next steps for the directorate and not focus only on biomedical engineering, which is my own background, but all engineering disciplines. So what made you decide to come to NSF? After years and and accolades on the other side of the the fence, now you decided to, to try your hand on the side of fence that hands out money versus receiving money. This is an incredible time in our nation. It's a time when we have pressing problems where engineers really can come up with the pathways towards solutions. And it is a time when the focus on science and engineering is really widespread throughout our nation from the youngest children who are learning how engineering and science can make a difference in the pandemic and create at warp speed new vaccines, disseminate them to people, and to really be able to track the information about where that virus is and how effective strategies are to mitigate its effects. It's so clear 
at a, at a fundamental level that science and engineering are important in the economic future of our country, as well as the opportunities for all of its citizens. So we, we are at a time where engineering is needed and it was a time to step up and really serve the nation. This really calls to my priorities, my own personal values of really giving back and helping facilitate opportunities for all. And so it's my pleasure to be able to serve in this capacity now. Did you ever think one, you work for the federal government or NSF and two, did they recruit you? Did you throw your resume, so to speak, against the wall and see if it stuck? How did you get to the position you're in today coming from academia? So actually, I was called to consider this position. I would have thought my predecessors were deans or vice deans in leadership positions across entire engineering colleges or um, schools. So for me, it was actually a call from a member of the search committee who said, Susan, we actually think that because you're a chair of biomedical engineering, which in of itself is a convergent discipline where we need to speak many languages, those of science, all disciplines of engineering, as well as those of medicine to really make a difference. And in addition, that I was a chair in the biomedical engineering department that is both in Emory School of Medicine and I'm a tenured faculty member in Emory, as well as in Georgia Tech's College of Engineering, where I'm a tenured faculty member at Georgia Tech. And really being able to understand and speak the languages of a large public institution that's driven by technology and engineering, and a large private institution where medicine is really the largest entity on campus and being next to the CDC, the applications of medicine in society are are very, very strong themes there. This person on the search committee said, you know what? you actually understand partnerships between diverse cultures. And uh, this is an opportunity to really help NSF form partnerships, not only within the National Science Foundation, with other agencies, with industry, and uh, with other types of partners to really be able to bring engineering to a new level. And so I had not considered it. I did not throw my resume at the wall to see if it stuck. Instead, I was wooed to, to listen to the challenge and to what the opportunity was. And I was really drawn to the opportunity to leave. What a great story, because I think so many times folks don't know, understand the opportunities that exist in government to make that difference, to, to give back, but also to use the knowledge they've gained over the years to then make things better, which is, I think, what we all hope to do in our jobs. I'm speaking with Susan Margulies, the Assistant Director of the National Science Foundation, who leads the Engineering Directorate. Now, Susan, let's talk about some of your priorities. You were on the other side of the fence, as I said, receiving grants, applying to NSF. Now you're on the side that is giving out grants and really helping to promote this idea of engineering and solving the problems you mentioned, establishing these key partnerships. I know you've only been in place now for about four or five weeks. What are you hoping to accomplish? What are some of those priorities, some of your goals to improve the process, to really spread the word about engineering and the possibilities that exist? So I'll come back to those three themes of the problems, people, and partnerships. I believe that right now the priorities are addressing important problems where engineers play a critical role. At times we lead and we need to develop the uh, technologies as well as the basic engineering know-how to be able to address the problems. But sometimes we're working on those problems and we need to have partners at the table. And the people at the table could be communities and those are communities from across the nation. I grew up in Minnesota in a small town. I've lived in the Northeast. I've just come from four years in the deep South. The communities are really important to bring to the table and to help them understand. In addition, 
I think it's really important to bring to the table the other partners whose expertise can make a difference. So within NSF, it's very clear that the problems need the influence of the other directorates who are bringing their teams of experts to the table. The experts don't reside at the National Science Foundation. The experts literally are in the field. They're the students and the faculty and other experts who are making a difference with the funding that you so aptly put, uh, that we give out every year. So most of the money of the National Science Foundation really is disseminated throughout the country to be able to bring experts to the, to the problems and the problems forward to solution. So the problems that we're looking at right now are really big and gnarly. They include looking at climate, looking at solutions for clean energy. These are important for us to address now, not in our children's lifetimes, but in our lifetimes to make a difference in our children's lifetimes. We're using artificial intelligence and engineering to change the way we sense the world around us and use that information to respond dynamically. No more is it kind of a hub with distributed information that comes to a single decision. We've seen many networks break down, whether it's in storms or in many other situations, we need to think about how information is moving and how that information really is the engine that drives many of the things from the phone in our hands to large power grids. This information drives new equipment new technologies that need to be created and engineers are at the table there. When we think about disaster responses, we need to also be thinking about the infrastructure, not just of our nation, but in our homes to make us more resilient. Those are new materials. Those are new manufacturing methods that allow us to think differently about how the world moving forward is different than the world that we live in today. That we've learned a lot about biotechnologies and my experience in biomedical engineering, I think brings a perspective to the fact that in the olden days, we used to think of mimicking biology and that engineering would be able to create a mimic. An artificial heart is a really good example of that. But now with artificial intelligence or AI, we actually want to think like a brain. So we use biology to inspire new technologies that mimic what biology is, not for the purpose of being on a biological entity, but for actually being something that is part of our everyday activities, whether it's as an individual, as an industry, or as a nation. Let me maybe drill down for yeah. half a step, because one of the things that when you're on the outside looking in, you always wonder, why did, why did the NSF process work that way? Or why did they make that decision? Is that been maybe part of the biggest learning curve in this first month or, or over this first next six months you're going to have is, is really understanding the processes and the way NSF works? So one of the things that I've learned by being here at NSF for just three weeks is how important the information from the community is. NSF holds many workshops that are open to the public to attend, to provide information feedback and guidance to NSF about the problems that we should be studying or how we should be studying problems. And what's been really rewarding is that NSF really listens. We recently convened a committee called the Engineering Research Visioning Alliance, which brings together members of the community, uh, engineering community, as well as industry, as well as academia and government to come together to really articulate what are the important engineering challenges that we need to be addressing in the future? That's just one more community that is giving us information and guidance on the problems that we need to solve. In addition, we ask 
broad members of the community in terms of when you think about the community, sometimes people think about academia, that these are professors who are giving their advice. No, it comes down to community groups, community colleges, historically underrepresented communities are encouraged to participate. And one of the things that I really wanna do is to really provide increased transparency about how the National Science Foundation works. It really does welcome the input of the entire country in problems we should be solving, as well as uh, how we should be solving and who should be at the table to be solving. I'm enormously proud of the speed with which those pieces of information move into requests for research proposals. So from workshops that we had in May, we are now formulating emphasis areas for calls for proposals that will happen this year. That is incredibly fast. In addition, we have mechanisms where we have a, a very, we're very proud of our uh, merit review process, where those proposals will come in, they will be reviewed by experts in the field, who are disseminated all throughout the universities all around the nation. And then within the same year, awards will be made. So we can go from listening to acting to actually enacting change very quickly. Those awards are short-term awards. They're three-year awards typically. And at times they're five-year awards. We want people to make good progress and then come back to us for the next step. We also have mechanisms that I think aren't well recognized and known about, which are for one-year awards, where it doesn't go through the, the scientific review process, but are really staged at a very early, great idea that could really make a difference. And awards are made for small amounts and for a limited time, sometimes six months or one year, to be able to gather that compelling feasibility study to be able to come in for those longer-term awards. I'd like to really provide more transparency about the way the National Science Foundation can really fund the work that's happening right now and needs to happen, right? And that transparency really tags back to the Biden administration's push for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think what you're trying to do is, is expand the numbers and the types of people, organizations that can then work on these hard ideas. That sounds like what that's your, your, your longer term goal. So the second goal is people. And we really need to focus on, uh, the director likes to focus on the missing millions. Those are the people who are not yet at the table. And in engineering, we've been focusing on bringing more engineers, younger and younger and younger, um, into understanding what engineering is. When I applied to be an engineer as a freshman, I, I didn't know what engineering was. But I knew I loved puzzles and I knew I liked to, to really uh, to approach challenging problems. I want children who are at their early stages who are playing with toys that really encourage them to look at the environment around them and to assemble something that makes a real difference immediately. So when we think about the people, the missing millions who could be here, they really represent many people who are not yet in our process to be able to be educated as engineers and to be part of the workforce of tomorrow and really give them and make a difference in their lives in the career options available to them. But I also like to think about the invisible millions. The invisible millions are people already engaged in our pipeline uh, to become engineers and to become scientists, but perhaps they don't have the environment that really fosters success for them. And there's more that we could be doing to foster the inclusion of those who are already part of our diverse pipeline. So I wanna work on both of those things and we're equipped to do that. 
to bring more into our pipeline and to diversify those people who consider themselves engineers of today and tomorrow, and also to create more opportunities for those who are in the pipeline to really realize their dreams and our dreams for them to make a difference. Well, Susan, you mentioned you love solving puzzles. You uh, have entered into a big puzzle called the federal government, and so you'll have plenty of puzzles to solve over the coming years. So uh, first of all, let me thank you for your time. Susan Margolis is the Assistant Director at the National Science Foundation and leads the Engineering Directorate. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Susan Margolis is the head of the National Science Foundation's Directorate for Engineering, speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. 
and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, 
During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.